Hi, I'm Yaakov Katz, and welcome to a new episode of the Jewish People Policy Institute's Inside Analysis of the State of Affairs in Israel and the Jewish World. Today's episode, we are looking at the situation overseas, particularly on college campuses, as well as the fight against anti-Semitism. To do so, I spoke with Sarah Hurwitz, who was a White House speechwriter from 2009 to 2017, starting out as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama and then serving as the head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama. Sarah is currently on tour with Hillel around college campuses across the U.S., talking about her life story as well as her acclaimed book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. I then speak with senior JPPI fellows, Professor Michal Barasher-Siegel and Dr. Rachel Fish to get their take on the change that we're seeing right now in the U.S. when it comes to Israel and much more. Here we go. First, we'll start with the interview with Sarah Hurwitz. Sarah, it's great to have you with the uh, JPPI podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I know we're uh, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about. I want to talk a bit about your your book, uh, which both of us were actually finalists for the uh, Sammy Rohr Prize at the height of COVID. So we didn't get to meet at the time in person, although we did meet at some point. But uh, but it's a fantastic book to all our uh, listeners here all along and finding meaning, spirituality and deeper connection to life in Judaism. So I strongly recommend that people take a look at it. But I am I know I'm catching you in the middle of a tour that you're doing around college campuses. And I thought before we get into like the bigger issues, just tell us what's it been like spending so much time in a post October 7th world on college campuses, meeting with them, guessing a lot of Jewish college kids who are suffering from a lot of anxiety in these days, I guess. Uh, it has been horrifying, it has been devastating, and it has been enraging, uh, to be honest. You know, I went to college in the 90s. If I had walked through Harvard Yard wearing a t-shirt that said, I am a Zionist who love Israel, do you know what would have happened to me? Nothing. Would have been like wearing a t-shirt saying, I enjoy herbal teas, or, you know, I love ultimate Frisbee. People would have said like, Okay, thumbs up to you. Uh, try doing that on most college campuses today and you will be heckled, you'll be screamed at, you may be shoved. Um, just hearing the, hearing stories that even my parents don't, the experiences my parents didn't have in college in the 60s. I mean, I was telling my 80-year-old father about some of what I'm seeing and he just was floored, absolutely floored. I mean, you know, I sat down at a table with some students at a school the other day and one of them told me that, you know, some boys had called as she was trying to get into her dorm had called her an effing Jew. Uh, the girl next to me told me that her resident advisor, the upper class person who's supposed to be your, you know, your your mentor, your who's supposed to enforce the rules, won't speak to her or look at her because the upper class person is a is an anti-Zionist. She knows this kid is Jewish, won't speak to her, look at her. And then another kid at the table told me he had moved in with one of his professors because he was just getting so much abuse on campus he couldn't take it anymore, and he no longer yeah. wears his keep. Um, these are not one-off unusual stories again varies from campus to campus you know i've been going to a lot of pretty bad ones but i think if you are a jewish student who cares at all about your jewishness has any kind of engagement you are feeling it and it is just it's horrifying and i can also you know i can tell you i think it's very confusing for these kids yeah. because i they're used to the kind of anti-semitism which 
who the author Dara Horn calls poor anti-Semitism, which is Jews are bad, we kill them. End of story. Nothing the Jews can do to be okay. Keep the anti-Semitism simple. That's what exactly. you're saying. The good, you know, the classic anti-Semitism. This is a different kind, which she calls Hanukkah anti-Semitism. And, you know, the idea is, look, we won't kill you or hurt you if you give up whatever we currently view as disgusting about Jewish civilization. So back in the day, it was give up Jewish religion, become a Christian. You're good. You know, maybe. We'll see. Um, today, it is disavow your ancestral homeland, and then you're a good Jew. Then you're okay. And it really is this modern demand for conversion. Uh, the professor, Carrie Nelson, I think makes this point very powerfully in his writings that, you know, you see these college students say, these Jewish college students who they get to college and they, they they go through this whole process of like, you know, growing up, they told me Israel was amazing. Then I got here and I realized Israel was depraved and bad and, and violent and vengeful. And, you know, I took anti-colonialism and anti you know, Zionism into my heart and I saw the light and now I am saved. Now I am okay. And that's how you become acceptable as a Jew on campus. And, you know, I'm really moved by the number of Jews who refuse, who just refuse that, that nonsense that we've been, you know, that's been put on us for centuries and are strong, proud, passionate Jews and Zionists, but it is very hard for them. So, I, I, I mean, this comes from somewhere, right? The, the, this has been there. It's been beneath the surface. Uh, colleges, especially, you have professors who have been, you know, indoctrinating students uh, to become anti-Zionist or against Israel, comparing us to colonialists for for many many years now. But it's all, boy, you know, spilling over the the the, the surface now, and it's hitting a lot of these Jewish kids. And I and, and I wonder also. I don't want to sound defeatist, but I was thinking a bit about this. I'm curious what you think. You know, anti-Semitism has always been there. It's like the oldest form of hate in the world to some extent. And, you know, it morphs and it changes. But like people now are so up in arms and it's like, what can we do? How can we defeat it? How can we find it? We can't. I mean, we can't we defeat anti-Semitism, right? We can I agree. empower I people. We can, you know, our own, we can try to influence the decision makers and policymakers. But can I mean, how do you see this? I, I really agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm getting a little bit tired of everywhere I go to speak. You know, all these Jews are saying to me, well, we're not we're not doing it right. We, we, we right. just we haven't found the magical thing to do to end the anti-Semitism. You can't defeat anti-Semitism. You survive it. And the real and the reason for that is there are 16 million with an M million. That is the size of Istanbul, size of, I don't know, fifth largest city in China. There are eight billion others in the world. Okay, we are, as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory said, we are a rounding error on the Chinese census. There are so, even if every one of us posts the most perfect social media, even if we form the most perfect programs and policies and this and that, again, we are a tiny little fraction of the world's population. And trying to end anti-Semitism, it's sort of like trying to bail out a tsunami with a bucket. I mean, I guess if we all get together and do it, maybe the wave will be a little bit lower. But and I think there are things we can do. I appreciate the work that groups like the ADL are doing. You know, there there are things you can do for sure. But I think instead of just spending all our time bailing out the tsunami with buckets, we have to build an arc. That's why I tell college students we have to be, build an arc. We have to actually instead of just spending all our time being anti-anti-Semites, we have to be proud, passionate, like learned, engaged Jews. We have to form strong, loving Jewish communities. That is really what I would just urge Jews to be doing right now, because I do think you're right. It's been 4,000 years. We haven't kicked this yet, and I, I don't think we're going to. This is a neural groove that has been worn into the world's psyche for 2,000 years, really, in one particular way, but I would, you know, for much longer than that as well, and it is very hard to overcome. 
So going around these college campuses, I mean, another thing that that, that I sometimes think about is I, I get these questions also, you know, what can we do? What's the solution? Right. And everyone's like, you know, we got to We got to we got to change the mainstream media and we have to be more on TikTok. And why aren't you on TikTok? And I'm like, I can't, you know, there's an, I, my brain can only handle so much. I can't do TikTok. Um, but what I also think is that what I say to some Jewish groups often is, are you educating your kids in the right way and empowering yeah. them with the right tools? So like when you're in college campuses and you're meeting a lot of these Jewish kids, do they know the facts? Do they know the context? Before we go over to, uh, just for lack of, before we go try to teach the Goyim, right? The non-Jews, are we teaching our people how they should be? You are singing my song. I mean, I passionately believe you cannot fight anti-Semitism if you know nothing about Jewish tradition or Jewish history. If someone says to me, Israel is a white colonial genocidal settler state, and I know nothing about Israeli history or Jewish history, if I'm a quote, cultural Jew, what am I gonna say? I love Kugel and my mother's anxious, ha ha. That my, is that my answer? You know, if someone tells me that Judaism is a legalistic, weedy, violent and vengeful religion that's unspiritual and lacking in grace, if I know nothing about Jewish tradition at all, what what will I say? Like, ha ha, I'm intellectual and have a good sense of humor. I mean, again, these thin kind of cultural Jewish identities that are basically, they basically make being a Jew into an ethnic joke, which I just find so distasteful, they they leave us utterly unequipped to fight anti-Semitism. So I thoroughly agree with you. I mean, a lot of the kids I'm talking to are quite knowledgeable. You know, these are kids who go to Hillel. I'm doing the tour through Hillel. So these are students who are engaged in the Hillel. So they tend to be quite knowledgeable. But I think a lot of Jewish kids on college campuses, you're right, they don't know anything. They literally know almost nothing. Um, I was one of them 10 years ago before I rediscovered Jewish tradition and spent thousands of hours learning and wrote a book. And so I, I feel for them. And I can tell you, it's very, very hard as a Jew in that position to meaningfully speak back when you hear anti-Semitism. So I, I, if you don't mind, I want to go back a bit because, you know, you have an interesting story just in yourself. You, you were uh, in your 30s about reached the pinnacle of your career. You were writing, you were a speechwriter, first for Michelle Obama, then you became a speechwriter also for the president, Barack Obama. Yeah. Brown, believe it or not, I was for him first and then moved over to her. Okay, sorry. Right. So uh <laughs> but 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 for both right. Obamas. So um and then you found some some yearning or hunger or thirst, whatever you want to call it, for spirituality. And you went back to your childhood faith or sort of meaning you were looking for. I mean, so no. well, I got it all wrong. So walk me through what happened. Okay. <laughs> Looking for, uh, I just, at the age of 36, you know, I grew up with very minimal, uh, sort of typical American Jewish upbringing of boring services, bad Hebrew school. I walked away. Um, when I was 36, I broke up with a guy I was dating and I was just really lonely and anxious. Wasn't looking for anything in particular, but I happened to hear about an intro to Judaism class at the local JCC, the Jewish Community Center. And I truly signed up to fill a Wednesday night. I thought, I'm a cultural Jew. I'll learn about my culture. If it had been like a ceramics class, I probably would have signed up. Really was not anything deep going on. But maybe this but, would be ceramics with Kugel. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Right. You know, what I found in that class was 4,000 years of wisdom about the human condition. You know, I found out about how to live a worthy life, how to, you know, have, be a good person, how to find deep spiritual connection. And it was amazing how well this had been hidden from me growing up as a, an American Jew with my you know, three holiday a Jew, no, three holiday a year kind of Judaism, you don't really see the profundity. You don't even know there is profundity because you have what 
Professor Larry Hoffman calls pediatric Judaism. And so, you know, I decided to, I did a lot of learning. I decided to write a book, really find, try to share really the deepest and most transformative wisdom that I found in our tradition. So not like an intro how-to book and not a super esoteric academic book. I read many of both those kinds of books. Did that for you, you're welcome. And I really tried to put it, put my, put my energy into writing a book that would be incredibly substantive, but also engaging and conversational. So that was the, the goal. And it, where did it take you, essentially? Like when you look back now, it's been, what is it, like five, six years, yeah. five years since the book came out. Like where does it, where is it taking you personally on your personal journey? You know, it is really, it's taken me to sort of every corner of the country and, and internationally to Jewish communities. And what it's helped me see is there's just such yearning to connect with this tradition and Jews are kind of struggling to find the places to do so. You know, I think that the Judaism that many of us grew up with in America really is a legacy of the emancipation in Europe, right? It's a legacy of this moment when Jews, you know, were offered citizenship and jumped at the chance to do it, but essentially Protestantized their Judaism in order to, to fit in, right? It was like, well, mm -hmm. I'm just a fan of the Jewish persuasion. That was kind of the, the vibe, as the kids say. And so they basically took a Protestant cookie cutter, jammed it into Judaism and got rid of everything that didn't quite have a Protestant parallel. And you know, it's really sad because we lost a lot of the things about Jewish tradition that I find most profound. You know, Jewish study as a form of worship. I mean, I think Jewish study for me is how the most important way that I engage with this tradition. You know, rituals like Shabbat, some of our more embodied mystical traditions, you know, Judaism as a nature and land-based tradition. We kind of lost that all in our attempt to be quasi-Christians. And so I think, you know, for me, writing that first book was a way to begin reclaiming that. And I was really surprised. I wrote it for Jews like me, but I would I would encounter these very, very observant, you know, sometimes ultra-Orthodox Jews who say to me, this book is for me. Mm -hmm. I would say, it is not. <laughs> it wasn't for you at all. I'd say, no, no, it is because you have a fresh take. And I see you have 550 endnotes. So you clearly did your homework. And I see that you love this tradition as much as I do. And even if I disagree with a lot of what you write, I appreciate your passion. And mm -hmm. so that was a wonderful way to connect with a lot of different kinds of Jews. I think also people who grew up, you know, FF, what is it, FFB from, from birth, right, um, are are taken for granted and not, have never been on that kind of journey to rediscover their Judaism. It, it, just in the quick time that we have left, Sarah, you're working on a new project, a new book. I, I, you can't tell us much about it, but what, what, what should we anticipate? Yeah, it's really me taking a look at the Jewish identity that I that I embraced for most of my life, which is, you know, I'm a cultural Jew slash social justice Jew slash I remember the Holocaust and beginning to investigate where exactly that comes from and finding that it actually comes from a pretty ugly place of anti-Semitism, self-hatred and shame, and just trying to really unpack that uh, both for myself and for readers. So we'll see. We'll see where it takes me. Okay. Well, we look forward. Sarah Hurwitz, it was great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So that was Sarah Hurwitz, uh, interesting conversation, kind of just looking at um, the uh, situation on the ground when it comes to the uh, college campuses, of course, but also looking at what the situation is regarding anti-Semitism in the U.S. And 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 for that, I'm, I'm glad that we have with us uh, Michal and Rachel to kind of dive into this a bit deeper. Uh, I mean, Rachel, you know, maybe we'll just start with you. you. You are you have a lot to say, I'm guessing. And I'm sure you probably know Sarah as well, but you probably have a lot to say about uh, the situation right now. But what I was I, I want to frame our conversation 
for a moment just with the following. And that is that, you know, there's just been this bit of a duel between Netanyahu and Obama over the last couple of days about U.S. support for Israel, right? And Ob- uh, Netanyahu and Biden, I'm sorry, Obama, I'm back in the Obama <laughs> because of Sarah, uh, Netanyahu and Biden. And Netanyahu basically saying, well, look, there was this Harvard poll that says that, you know, 80 percent or something of Americans are supporting Israel. What I found most interesting, by the way, in the Harvard poll was that uh, 63 percent think that Israel is taking uh, measures to actively try and minimize civilian casualties. Put that aside. Then there's another poll that came out today, which uh, New York Times uh, and uh, some Siena College poll, which about President Biden's handling of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and only 33 percent approve that. So. I mean, you know, give me some of your thoughts and kind of let's look at it also in that in that frame of mind. Thank you, Yaakov, and nice to see you, Michal. I appreciate Sarah's words. I, I would focus not particularly on the polls you just mentioned, but Yaakov, at Boundless, we've been looking consistently at 18 to 34-year-olds, specifically in the non-Jewish world. And the numbers are dramatically different than the general population, dramatically you see much less support towards the United States administration and their collaboration, support of Israel in this conflict. You see much higher levels of frustration with the administration. And you see that with these different populations, a perspective on Israel that squarely fits into the framework that Sarah was describing of Israel as a white colonialist imperialist outpost. And those individuals do not understand at all the geopolitical issues that JPPI talks about every single day and zooming out of this conflict. They see this as a very specific hyper-local conflict between Israel and Hamas in this moment where anything Hamas does is justified because it is perceived as liberation. So, Michal, on that point, the, uh, the, the, the this idea that we can even, let's say, change the hearts and minds of these young folks, right? You know, Sarah and, and I were both kind of talking about, OK, what do we do? Right. <laughs> How do we change things? I know that, you know, Rachel, you, you, you that's something that you're very much focused on. But Michal, looking at I mean, you, you've taught these students, right? You you recently came back from evil Harvard. I say that in quotation marks. Um, is it possible to change and, and get people to think a little differently? It's a good question. I, 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 I hope you can. And I have to tell you from my experience, uh, you know, you encounter, you know, I was the war started, I was teaching at Harvard and I had to walk into class on Thursday. There were still, I don't know, terrorists in the uh, you know on the ground and there were still you know body parts uh, and i had to get out of bed literally and and walk into class and teach at harvard and walk through protests that yelled from the river to the sea and hundreds and die-ins and and all kinds of stuff like that and walk into class what was um um optimistically i realized that what was uh, nice about it that my students uh um were of a different sort. So you see the protests, the ones that are willing to go out and yell from the river to the sea, and you you see those people calling for like it. But my students, 50 students, didn't know much about this. We, we had the Jews in the class, a few of the Jews, but most of the class were Christians or, you know, um, non-Jews in general, and they didn't know much. And they saw a teacher in front of them that was crushed. I would walk into class and cry. 
And I decided very openly, and I think I had the privilege of not being a Harvard faculty or bound by any rules, I could just speak my heart. And I brought slides and I talked about my family and my friend and I was very far from everyone and I was very uh, worried and, and heartbroken and, and really crushed. I, I cried in class and I wrote some stuff and read to them and I and I answered questions. Um, and I have to say, I saw, I don't know how much they understood and how much they, you know, they support every, supported everything I said, but we had a relationship. We talked, I, I would, I was a place for them to ask questions to understand. And I have to say, I felt very loved and supported by my students. Same thing with my colleagues. There are the colleagues who stopped talking to me. There are the colleagues that I had to, you know, unfriend on Facebook because I couldn't support, uh, some of the stuff that we're saying, but the vast majority uh, wanted to know more. They wanted to know how I was personally, how my family was, but also wanted to know where I stand. I had a few conversations. I got emails from people saying, we don't understand you're a critic of the Israeli government. How can you not be a critic of what's happening now? And so we picked up the phone and I talked for two hours and explained what's different this time, you know, uh, how things are complicated and complication is a good thing. Uh, so I do believe in education and I do think that there's something... I'll say one one last thing. Uh, it's a long answer to your short question, but I'll say I'll say one last thing. Um, I belong to the group of people that now turn against Israel. These these are my colleagues and my friend. I come from humanities. I have friends in gender studies, and I have them in colonial studies. I teach this in my classes. I do um, religious studies, and I teach Talmud, but I do this through the lens of of you know social studies and critique um um gender and, and and feminism and 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 this this was heartbreaking because these are my colleagues and the simplistic notion that if you support Palestinian rights you support what happened with Hamas that simplistic notion coming from academics who are supposed to know complexity who are supposed to know that black and white that colonial theory doesn't work fully with what's happening in Israel and you can't just apply notions that don't apply fully uh, that was extremely disappointing, uh, but I still believe that if I talk to them back on an academic level and explain what I'm just explaining to you, to them as well, um, I truly hope that this will, you know, do something in the world, at least in the in the fact that, you know, people like me and my colleagues, Israelis, that they respect and think, say to them, no, you're wrong. That at least give them pause, you know, if they're not in a bubble where they only hear right. uh, each other. Right. I'm just smiling, thinking how many people will probably, you know, say, oh, she's naive. But OK, uh, <laughs> Rachel, you know, the, the the part of the conversation, because I know you're very focused on the, the combating also of anti-Semitism and and the together with Viva Klumpass, your your partner and founder over at uh, Boundless. But the um, this idea, you know, uh, Sarah spoke about. Uh, what was it like with the ladle and a tsunami or something like that? I, I, I've sometimes used before the metaphor of trying to drain, you know, drain the ocean with a spoon, whatever, the same idea. Where should the efforts be focused? Because I'm, I'm sure you get this all the time. Rachel, what do we do? What do we do? Let's do, let's, here's $5 million. Let's do a TikTok campaign here. I mean, what, what should the focus be on right now for American Jews who are really like at the gates clamoring saying, what do we do? I think it's a really important question, Yaakov. I don't think there's a singular answer to it. We know that there is no silver bullet, and we need philanthropists to utilize data to inform larger strategic interventions and disruptions. We just do. And right now, uh, we have a lot of folks who are easily enamored 
by perceptions of quick fixes, but there is no quick fix. Taking an influencer to Israel is not a quick fix. Doing a TikTok campaign is not a quick fix. Putting on a public service announcement, not a quick fix. And I do fall squarely in the camp with Michal around education because it is my own orientation. And at the same time, I hear what you said with Sarah. And the question is, are we educating the Jewish community? Are we educating the non-Jewish community? Where do we start? Right. And I think, of course, it has to be a little bit of yes and for all of this. I, I will say, and Michal, here's where I'm struggling. I deeply, deeply believe in education, and especially for those don't knows, which I think most are. Most are don't knows, and we can hopefully inform them so that they can have better understanding, greater historical context, greater humanization of Jews, Judaism, and Israel through encounters with you know, thoughtful, articulate, considerate teachers. All that being said, if we're living in a post-fact world, a post-truth world, and post-modernism is ruling the day, and I can't tell you how many interactions I have with students every single week on multiple campuses where they don't want to hear basic information from any source, let alone Western newspapers, about Hamas, and they only have particular narratives in their head that they're willing to accept, what that leads me to believe is that their perspective has become an indoctrinated doctrinal belief system. And if it's a belief system, then it is going to have to dramatically shift how I think about doing education, because it won't just be about historical facts and information, because that's not going to move the needle. And so it really poses a serious question because when I look out the window and I say, look, the sun is shining and I have a group of students who look out the same window and they say, what are you talking about? You're insane. It is storming outside. We are not living in the same reality. And that then poses a real issue, Yaakov, just to even the world of education that I think Michal and I deeply inhabit and care so much about. I, I need to say something about that. Sure. I, uh, I know them very well, those students, and I, I understand. Obviously, what they're expressing is, is uh, you know, it's it's going all the way to the other side because and it's not surprising because we've been ignoring, you know, minority rights and we've been ignoring, you know, uh, certain points of view and, and not understanding power struggles and and colonials. You know, this is a new finding. So everyone gets very excited and they turn uh, grotesquely to the other side and, you know, ignoring uh, complexity and stuff. So I have, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for these kinds of young people, you know, or not even young, you know, uh, I, I seeing it in my colleagues as well. Who, who, you know, uh, want to push on that point. Um, but I, I I strongly suspect that if we expose the reasons for why they're doing that or, you know, educate on that, then we would be in a better place. And I, I, I really think the way to do it is, you know, one-on-one -on -one or going to campuses and doing that. And I really think that this, this can make a difference. So let me ask a provocative question to wrap up here for a moment. Um, how much of it has to do with the personalities right now that are at the top of Israel's government, right? Uh, you know, the the fact that I have a lot of people, I mean, I have friends in Washington. I was talking with one of them yesterday, very staunch Democrat, head of a of a of a of an organization that tries to bring together progressives, Jews, Israelis, and things the likes, and says to me, listen, your your prime minister is not the solution. 
I mean, how much of this, let's start with you, Rachel, and then go back to Michal. What do you, how much of it is the personalities? For sure, the personalities play into this, for sure. Uh, and for sure, you see a real immediate negative repulsion from the current leadership. But I also have been paying attention to this for over 20 years. And I am not at all convinced that if you had the most left of center peacenik in an office, what you would see playing out on American campuses would be different. I highly mm. doubt it would be. Michal? It makes our life very, very hard. How can I defend someone, you know, we, we, we're standing in hug and, and, and being judged by stuff that we can't defend. We have a horrible government that's fascist, that's, you know, un anti-Zionist, everything that I believe Zionism should be, anti-liberal. And I um, need to explain that while this is happening, we're simply de defending our rights to live here. And since the conversation is no longer on 67, the, the conversation is on about 48, and our right to, to live in this country and, 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 you know, make Israel what it is, if, if this is what Israel then it makes it so much harder to defend. This is this is this is this is why this needs to be solved first and foremost. This is just one of the. Uh, I, I mean, listen, it makes things definitely much more complicated because when you say, of course, we don't want to reoccupy Gaza, but then you have ministers of the government who are going to a rally and dancing, saying we want to reoccupy Gaza. So your average person around the world says, I, I don't know, you know, you're saying that, but then the finance minister and the national security minister are saying what they're saying. So obviously this doesn't, this doesn't help Israel. And I think, you know, it, it's what I often say when people, but you know, better Hasbara, better PR, better public diplomacy, no matter how good the public diplomacy is, when the policies are inherently bad, the best PR can't always help that. Thank you for joining us today. You can find all our episodes where you get your podcasts. Please share widely and give us a five-star review. We will see you back here soon.